Good morning, everybody. We are, our passage today comes from John's Gospel, the 20th chapter, continuing where we left off on Friday. I'm going to be reading chapter 20, verse, verses 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So, who was Mary Magdalene? The woman who set out to visit the tomb of Jesus the Sunday following his execution. In times past, some have tried to identify her with Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And some people have in turn made out Mary of Bethany to be the woman from the seventh chapter of Luke's gospel who ministered to the Lord by washing his feet with her tears. Now, I'm not convinced. I think chances are Mary Magdalene's neither of these women, though some people disagree. But I still want to revisit Luke's story this morning because even though I don't think Mary Magdalene is the same woman Luke describes, I think she is the same kind of woman. In other words, someone with a very troubled past, 
who found redemption in the love and compassion of Jesus of Nazareth. Many of you know the story. Jesus is invited to feast at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and Jesus accepts the invitation. While they are reclining at the table, a woman enters the room who is categorized as a sinner. Now, there's a word we're very familiar with as Christians. One might say we are comfortable with the word sinner, and we call ourselves sinners. But there's a difference between calling yourself a sinner and being labeled a sinner by a group of people who think you are unfit to be in their company. That's an experience not all Christians can relate to, even though we all call ourselves sinners. We need to bear this in mind. When Simon sees the woman touching Jesus' feet, he says to himself, Ah, Jesus of Nazareth, he is not a prophet. No way. He's not a man of God. Because if he were a prophet, he would know the woman who's touching him, and he would tell her to go away. He would not tolerate it. On a superficial level, Simon's spiritual math might seem to add up because God is a holy God, right? And what do we know about holiness? We know that holiness does not mix with uncleanliness. The two do not go together. So if Jesus is a holy man, why is he allowing himself to be defiled? And Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. So he tells him a story. There's a money lender. There's two debtors. One owes a large sum of money. The other a small sum. Both of them are forgiven their debts outright. Simon, who's going to love the money lender more? And Simon says, well, obviously, the one who is forgiven more. And Jesus says, nailed it. You are exactly right. Those who are forgiven much, love much. And if Simon had understood that, he might have understood why this woman he despised was showing Jesus more love and care than he was, as holy as he thought himself to be. Mary Magdalene, as well, was someone who had a profound love for Jesus because of what he had done in her life. If you turn just one chapter over in Luke's Gospel to chapter 8, the very beginning of the chapter, Luke mentions Mary Magdalene by name, and he tells us that Jesus had cast no less than seven demons out of her. Now, I suppose we can only imagine what it would look like to be possessed by seven demons. But whatever we choose to imagine needs to be something extreme. This is not someone that's socially awkward that can be cured with a little dose of therapy. This is a woman who is, I am convinced, thought of as being out of her mind by the community in which she found herself. And she was probably treated accordingly. I doubt there were too many people that wanted anything to do with Mary Magdalene. But one person did. And he came to her 
And he showed her compassion and he showed her mercy. And it would seem that from that point on, Mary Magdalene's devotion to Jesus was fixed and it was riveted to him. In the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel, the evangelist tells us that Mary was there at the crucifixion. She watched Jesus die. Not only that, but Mary Magdalene also saw where Jesus' body was interred in the tomb. And now she's up before the dawn on Sunday morning going to visit the tomb. And her expectation is that tomb is going to look exactly the same as it did the last time she saw it. Like I said last service, I recommend when we're reading these resurrection accounts, we need to at least try to put ourselves in the position of people who don't know the ending of the story in order to feel the full impact of narrative. Because when Mary arrives on the scene and she sees the stone has been rolled away, what does she conclude? Does she say, ah, Easter Sunday has come. He is risen. The Lord's alive. No. She comes up with a much more rationalistic explanation. In fact, what's interesting, according to the evangelist's account, she doesn't at this point, he doesn't tell us that she even looks inside the tomb. She's so distressed, she just runs to tell the disciples. And here's what she says. They have come and taken the body of the Lord and we do not know where they have laid him. In other words, Jesus did not walk out of that tomb. Someone or some group of people came into the tomb and snatched the body away. She tells this to Peter and the other disciple who was probably the apostle John, so I'm going to go ahead and say John. Naturally, they want to check matters out for themselves. What in the world is she talking about? So they let out for the tomb. They're running together. But apparently John is in better shape than Peter. Because he outstrips him and he gets to the grave first. So he looks inside the tomb and now we are given a new piece of information. We can put on our Sherlock Holmes detective hat. Because the grave cloths are still in the tomb. Now that is very strange given Mary's explanation. Why would the tomb raiders take the time to disrobe the corpse? Was it they had another outfit they wanted to try on? Did they just haul the body away naked? What in the world is going on here? And as John is looking at all this, Peter finally catches up. And in true Petrine fashion, he just bolts right into the tomb. If you read the gospel stories involving Peter, you really do get the impression he was a rather impulsive individual. A leap before you look Fred Henderson type of guy. (laughs) So Peter's in the tomb and now we're given another piece of information we didn't have yet. The face cloth covering Jesus' head is also in the tomb. That's strange, but here's what's even weirder. It's neatly folded up and set to the side. Curiouser and curiouser, to quote Lewis Carroll. Why would the body snatchers not only disrobe the corpse, but take the time 
to neatly fold the face cloth. So we've got an empty tomb. We've got the linen cloth and the face cloth. John goes in and sees all this, and apparently he is the first one to put all the pieces of the puzzle together because the evangelist tells us that he believes. He came to the conclusion Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we can't just assume that Peter came to the same conclusion yet. In fact, if the other Gospels are any indication, Peter did not yet believe. He was just confused by everything that he had seen. Whatever the case may be, the two of them now leave and go back to wherever it was they were staying in Jerusalem at the time. There's nothing more to see. Meanwhile, Mary is back at the tomb. And she is in the exact same place she has been all day long. She hasn't modified her hypothesis. She has not reached an alternative explanation. She is convinced the Lord's body has been stolen. That's her story, and she's sticking to it. And now she just desperately wants to find his body. This is the last way she has in which she can minister to the man she loves so dearly. And she does not care about anything else. So when she walks into the tomb... She experiences, she sees something the other disciples did not see, a vision of angels. And she takes little to no interest in them. She's there in the tomb with angelic beings, and there is nothing they can do to comfort her or console her. Woman, why are you weeping? And she tells them, because they've taken the Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And then she sees somebody she suspects is the gardener. And he asks her the same exact question. Woman, why are you weeping? And you can imagine Mary wanting to say, would everybody just quit asking me why I'm crying? I'm crying. I'm distressed. The Lord is gone. And if you can't tell me where he is... It doesn't matter if you're the gardener. It doesn't matter if you're an angel from the third heaven. You cannot help me. Just tell me where he is. Grief is so hard to handle. Intense grief. The kind of grief we experience over the loss of people we've loved. And in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis talks about the desolation into which St. Augustine was plunged after the death of his great friend, Nebridius. St. Augustine, some of you may know, was a church father. He lived around the year 400. He was a bishop. He was a writer, a theologian, very prolific. And this is the moral he draws from the death of his friend. This is what comes, he says, of giving one's heart to anything but God. All human beings pass away. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. If love is to be a blessing, not a misery, it must be for the only beloved who will never pass away. And on one level, Lewis said, this argument really appealed to him and his temperament because he described himself as being 
a safety first person. So nothing like Fred Henderson. He didn't want to take risks. He wanted safe investments. So he didn't want to put himself in situations that might lead to suffering. He wanted that safety net. But then Lewis confessed that when he responded to that appeal, he felt himself to be a million miles away from Christ. And then he penned some of the most powerful words I've ever read. There is no escape along the lines St. Augustine suggests, nor along any other lines. There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. To love in a fallen world is a risk. A risk that we are all called on to take. And Mary took that risk. And she loved the Lord dearly. And now she is totally broken hearted. But one thing I'm convinced the evangelist is trying to show us in this passage. As remote as God may seem when we're suffering. As indifferent as he may seem. That is not the case. God is near the brokenhearted. Mary Magdalene hears her name. My son Isaac, when he was a little bit younger than he is now, he had a very unique way of saying his older sister's name. Her name is Lily. And I can't really imitate exactly the way he would pronounce her name, but it was something like Lolly. And whenever you heard him, or you ever, whenever you heard her name said in that way, you knew exactly who was addressing her. That's, that's Isaac. So I don't know if Jesus had some special way of pronouncing Mary's name, or whatever the case may be, but the second the word drops from her lips, she realizes she was wrong. That her hypothesis was no good. Her explanation was not the right one. Easter Sunday had arrived. He is risen. And what she does next is the same thing any sensible Christian would do in that situation. She springs up and bolts to the Lord and grabs him as tightly as she possibly can. She thought she had lost him once and she's going to make sure that she never loses him again. Now, I know when we read the gospel story in the condensed fashion that it's handed down to us, we read Jesus' response, and it might recommend to suspicion that Jesus objected to what Mary was doing, as if he's saying, ooh, please, don't touch me. 
And like I said last service, if you can believe that, it is your punishment that you can believe that. And I cannot even come, I, I have nothing but contempt for that. I don't believe Jesus became a Pharisee after he was resurrected. I imagine that Mary had been holding on to him for a good long while before he finally said, Mary, you're going to have to let me go. I've got a message that you've got to tell. And notice the word he uses. Tell my brothers. These are family ties. My God and your God. My Father and your Father. I am ascending to the Father. And remember what Jesus said to his disciples? It was for their benefit that he go. Why? Because then the Comforter would come. The Holy Spirit that would stand in the place of Christ so that all people at all times in all places could cling to him the way that Mary was clinging to him at that tomb. It was a gift that had to be shared with everybody. The resurrection is a very, very foundational and fundamental aspect of the Christian faith. And I was listening to a talk recently by Dr. Ravi Zacharias. He gave about two years ago at the University of Kentucky. And after the talk, they had a Q&A session. During the Q&A, a young woman comes up to the microphone and she explains that she had a Christian background and she had been educated at a Christian school. And her Christian background and education had impressed upon her that the most important thing about Jesus was his death. And she wanted to know, what do you think? And I really love the way that Dr. Zacharias responded. He began by saying, we do need to recognize the cross is very, very unique in human history. It's on Calvary that you have this strange convergence of evil, justice, love, and mercy. All focused in on one point in time, in one person. He said the cross is, of course, central to the gospel message. But he also said, and this is important, very important. The cross is not meant to be taken in isolation from the birth, life, and resurrection of Jesus. And that when we take one aspect of the gospel and we make it the most important aspect, we are rending asunder that which God has joined together. And the reason I really appreciated his response so much is because I have heard Christians preach so-called gospel messages that don't even hint at or allude to the resurrection. As if all we needed Jesus for, all we needed him to do is just die. Thanks for taking one for the global team, Jesus. And I can understand why some people prefer a dead redeemer. Because he's easy to follow. Who knows what that guy's going to do if I let him out of the tomb? Who knows what he's going to ask me to do? But the reality is it's not up to us to let him out. He came out. And so we need to make sure that when we're, we're 
preaching this message of salvation, and we're talking about what it means to put our faith in Jesus. We cannot limit that to just Jesus dying for our sins. Of course, it includes that message. He did die for our sins. But faith in Jesus also includes knowing him, trusting in him for guidance in our life, committing ourselves to him as Lord and Savior. And the reason we can know him and trust him and belong to him is because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is not lead people into propositional truths as important as propositional truths are. We are trying to lead people to a person. Now, we all of us need to be forgiven. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all of us need to be pardoned. But just equally, equally, we need to be connected to God through faith in the Son of God. And abide in Him. We need the Lord. And we have good news to preach to everyone. That the banquet table has been set. And everyone is invited. Everyone. It's not just the destitute and the desperate. And the outcasts, even though they are especially welcome, and they're often the first to respond to the call. But also, anyone, anyone who feels there is something missing in my life, anyone who thinks there's got to be more to life than this, I want to challenge anybody who feels that way, that that is Jesus calling to you and saying, come to me. That you might have life and have it to the full. And the scriptures tell us that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the reason that we can reach out to him, the reason that he responds is because he lives. So he is risen. He's risen indeed. And now it's up to us to do the right thing about it. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you and to lift up your name and to give you praise. And I ask that we would listen and hear your voice in our lives. And cling to you. That we might know you in the power of your resurrection. In Jesus' righteous name we pray. Amen.